Sending colon may be contracted to the thickness of the thumb. Dottie had never known anyone who thought it necessary to be well informed about embalming. Immediately, she ordered her own subscription. Each month, she leafed through the casket ads for hearses and giggled over the humor column, from grave to gay. Then she clipped the most interesting anatomic plates to hang above her desk. Over the months, her office friendship with Mr. Benchley had deepened steadily, and platonically, despite gossip to the contrary, until now they were practically inseparable. In the early evening of January the 11th, Bob left his home in Scarsdale and hurried into town on the seven o'clock train. It was easy to see that Cranny shared none of the responsibility for dismissing Dottie, since he was little more than a hired hand in the Conde Nast Empire, Vanity Fair, Vogue, House and Garden. The man behind her firing was Nast himself. Recently he had denied her a raise and squawked about several pieces, but she'd never given it a second thought. By every reasonable standard, she had done nothing wrong. Unfortunately, the publisher had never figured out that the duty of a critic was to determine what is of high artistic quality and what isn't. After several hours spent loudly damning Nast for stupidity, the man ought to be horsewhipped at the least. Both of them fell back on personal principles. She knew everything bad happened to her. He always believed the greatest sin was disloyalty. And so the next morning he went to the office and quit. With evident glee, the New York papers reported the upheavals in Nast's staff. A third editor, Robert Sherwood, also quit, and took the side of the editors. FPA, nay Franklin Pierce Adams, the city's most widely read columnist, wrote in the New York Tribune, R. Benchley tells me he hath resigned his position with Vanity Fair because they had discharged Mistress Dorothy Parker, which I am sorry for. The New York Times also ran a sympathetic account under the byline of its theater critic, Alexander Wolcott. Wolcott held court at the Algonquin Round Table. A group of friends, a dozen or so humorous journalists and playwrights, including Dottie and Bob, who regularly lunched together at the Algonquin Hotel, the Gonk on West 44th. That week, the walkout remained topic A over publishing luncheon tables. At Vanity Fair, Frank Crowninshield continued to shake his head. When Bob submitted his resignation, Crowney concluded that he had lost his mind. Bob's wife, Gertrude, stuck in Scarsdale with their two boys, thought so too. But to Dottie, his willingness to walk away from his job would forever be treasured as the greatest act of friendship she could imagine. Dottie sold her first poem to Vanity Fair in 1914, before the war, when learning the tango and the turkey trot was the biggest thing on some people's minds. Her verse had appeared earlier in FPA's Conning Tower column, but this was her first publication for money, the sum of $12. She felt so tremendously confident that she presented herself at the offices of the new Condé Nast magazine on West 44th Street to apply for a writing job. At that time, she was playing piano at a dance school and thinking about a new line of work. But to be on the safe side, she told Frank Crowninshield that she was an orphan, an exaggeration. The tall, silver-haired editor would always remember his first glimpse of Dorothy Rothschild. Dainty manners, well turned out in a smart suit and bowed black patent pumps, drenched in perfume, brandishing a verbal switchblade.
No openings were available, but Crowney, with his gift for spotting talent, directed her to Vogue, where for ten dollars a week she was indentured, writing captions for drawings of underwear. Brevity is the soul of lingerie. Vogue was a fossilized place, manned by lizardy-skinned Victorians wearing lorgnettes. But the job was a good deal better than slaving at the dance studio and living with her sister's family. In a fit of mischief, she once tried to sneak past the proofreaders a caption suggesting that a peekaboo mousseline de soie nightdress would be perfect for a night of debauchery. She was bored, barely managing to stay out of trouble, when Crowney rescued her from peonage in the undies department. In the autumn of 1917, he engineered her transfer to Vanity Fair, where she was assigned to write features and comic verse. It took only a few months before she replaced the English humorist P.G. Wodehouse as theater critic. To Dottie, who had always loved the stage, the chance to become New York's only woman drama critic was incredible good luck the first she'd ever known. But she soon discovered a tiny worm in the apple. Vanity Fair prided itself on being a magazine of no opinion, and she had nothing but opinions. Nevertheless, she tried her best to please by adopting the attitude that her job was to be a sort of weather forecaster. Faced with mediocre shows, she dutifully proceeded to issue regular gale warnings, along with solid information theater-goers needed to know. Bring knitting. Sneak out for a brisk walk around the reservoir. Go home. Or a favorite of hers. No need to show up at all. Unlike other critics who confined their reviews to plot and performance, Dottie complained about the locations of her seats, smacked producers for low taste, and pilloried chorus lines for looking motherly. She one time reviewed the performance of a woman seated next to her who had been searching for a lost glove. Not surprisingly, her columns pleased quite a lot of readers, as much as they enraged an awful lot of producers. In the January issue, Dottie was critical of a comedy by Somerset Maugham. She thought that the leading lady, Billy Burke, had overacted badly and compared her performance to that of a well-known vaudeville dancer famous for wild gyrations. After objections from Crown and Shield, Dottie toned down the review of Caesar's wife and mildly observed that Burke, at 35, was too old to play an ingenue and her impersonation of Etha Tangway, the I-don't-care girl, also seemed ill-advised. Billy Burke happened to be the wife of Florin Ziegfeld, not only a powerful Broadway producer, but also an important Vanity Fair advertiser. Affronted, Ziegfeld made a fuss about Mrs. Parker, and within days, Condé Nast fired his wiseacre critic. During their remaining weeks at the magazine, Dottie and Bob made a point of expressing their disdain for Nast. They pinned on red discharge chevrons and marched around the office in a conspicuous display of scorn, even hung a sign in the lobby of the building requesting contributions for Miss Billy Burke. As soon as Dottie left, the same week that Prohibition began, the company hastened to cancel her casket subscription and rip down her anatomic art but could do little about the odor of her favorite perfume, Cody Chypre, which must have seeped into the upholstered antique chairs. Around the water cooler, secretaries in high-heeled Morocco slippers gossiped that the whole office could stand fumigating. 
What's more, Mrs. Parker had asked to be punished for daring to write something quite vulgar about Billy Burke's having thick ankles. But Mr. Nast insisted that was not dramatic criticism, and ordered it cut. And that was the real story on her dismissal. By February, Dotty and Bob had begun to share a tiny office in the Metropolitan Opera Building at Broadway and 39th. Actually, it was not an office, but a corner of a corridor that had been glassed off, so cramped that an inch smaller and it would have been adultery, she joked. There was room for two scuffed tables, three chairs, one for visitors, two typewriters, and a hat rack. They laughed about maybe getting their door lettered, Utica Drop Forge and Tool Company, Robert Benchley President, Dorothy Parker President. Luckily, she began receiving freelance assignments from magazines such as the Saturday Evening Post. Getting fired, she guessed, wasn't the end of the world after all. It might even be for the best. Still, she doubted if she would ever again feel quite so foolishly happy as she had at Vanity Fair. That winter, weeks after leaving the magazine, Dottie and one of her friends bumped into Condé Nast in the lobby of the Algonquin Hotel. Nast, as congenial as he could be, had the gall to tell her that he would be going on a cruise shortly and wished she could join him. Dottie gave the publisher her brightest smile. If only she could, she replied very politely. As soon as he had walked on, she turned to Bunny Wilson. Oh, God, she whispered, make that ship sink. The typewriter was a feather-light, shiny black Corona Number no. 3 portable, a real beauty whose carriage folded trimly over the keyboard. It even came with a special leather carrying case. Regrettably, Edna St. Vincent Millay could not afford the pedigreed Corona.